As you guys are settling into your seats, the ushers are going to receive the offering. And so if you brought that with you, you can get that out. And let me also say this. If you're visiting with us or you're a guest of somebody and this is your first time, please don't feel any obligation to give. Um, we're just really grateful that you're here and you're hanging out with us today. That's, that's truly a gift for us. Um, while you're kind of settling in, just a couple of things I want to mention before I dive into the message today. Um, Next weekend, we've got some really great stuff that we're going to announce. We've got some really fun plans for students and kids this summer. Youth for the City, something we experimented with. Lane and his team led that last year. And uh, we're going to do it again this summer, even better than last year. And so we've got some announcements regarding that next week. We've got a day camp coming up this summer for kids. And so um, we'll let you know more details. That's all next Sunday. So you'll want to be here to hear about that. And then also next Sunday, we're doing pancakes again between our services. And so uh, if you want to come early for the 11 or come late, or for the nine, I don't know what that looks like, but you can come and have some pancakes with us, some good old-fashioned fun together, but I want to mention those things. And now, if you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it up there. You can use one of the pew Bibles, and if you don't have that, the screen behind me is going to have the words on it as well. As you're turning there, I want to just share an observation that I've made about humans. Um, There are certain things, there are certain... um, experiences, there are certain feelings that we have as human beings that are universal. Uh, I know that's kind of difficult sometimes for us to wrap our brains around because we feel so individual. We live in a highly individualized culture, but there are certain experiences that are common among all of us. They're just simply a part of being human. We all feel them. It doesn't matter what language you speak or where you live or the color of your skin. If you're human, you share these common experiences. And and one of them that I want to hone in on this morning is this thing or this idea or this concept that we call home. Um, I call it a thing rather than a place for a reason. Now, certainly, a home can be a place. It can be a physical location. But that's not always the way that we use that word. We often use the word home to describe something that is more than just a physical location. Uh, We use it to describe uh, a situation or a sensation or a feeling that we get. Um, maybe you visited someplace and when you came back, people said, how was it? And you said something like, you know, I just felt like I was at home while I was there. You don't really have the words for it, but it just felt different. Or maybe you're with a group of people and there was such a level of comfort and a level of trust and a level of acceptance and transparency that you would say, I just feel at home when I'm with those people. If I invite you over to my house, and I tell you to make yourself at home, I'm inviting you into a particular attitude or approach to my home, right? I'm not just inviting you into a physical reality when I say that. I'm actually saying now that you're in this physical reality, I want you to live in a certain way. I want you to make yourself at home. And I want you, I'm giving you permission to be comfortable. Like if you wanna go to my freezer and find that half empty thing of Ben and Jerry's and grab a tablespoon and eat it, you can do that, right? In fact, do it for me. It's a way of serving me if you do that, right? So so these are just examples of this thing that we call home. We might not be able to describe it perfectly, but when we find it, we know it. We feel it. There's a sensation that we get. Which, by the way, have you ever been in a house and you haven't felt at home? Anybody? Anybody? See, that's also a thing, right? 
Here's what's interesting. In the same way that feeling at home is universal, so is the opposite. We all know what it's like to not feel at home. And we have all sorts of ways of describing this. We can feel out of place or we can feel unwelcome. We can feel disconnected. Someone or something can feel cold or, or disengaged or distance. And, and, and at times, it has nothing to do with the physical environment that we find ourselves in. I mean, have you ever heard somebody say something like, I don't feel comfortable in my own skin? We often don't feel at home, and it turns out it has nothing to do with the circumstances around us. It's just us. Most of the time, it's something that's happening inside of us. And we have words for this as well. We say things like, I feel out of sorts. We say things like, I just feel disconnected. We say things like, I don't feel like myself right now. Sometimes when somebody asks me, hey, is everything okay? I'll say things like, you know, I just feel off. So we all have times when things simply don't feel right and there's this restlessness that sort of rises up inside of us. And what I'm describing is something that isn't on the surface. What we're talking about is something that exists at the level of the soul. This is something deeper. This is a few layers deep. I don't feel at home. About a year or so ago, John Mayer released a song that starts with these lyrics. He says, I guess I just feel like nobody's honest, nobody's true, everyone's lying to make it on through. I guess I just feel like I'm the same way too. It sounds like something is off, like he doesn't feel at home. See, there's something out of sorts in the human soul, and it's universal. And there's a reason for it. Uh, in writing about this same idea, the fourth century theologian, philosopher, Augustine said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In other words, we'll never feel at home until our hearts are at home with God. By the way, did you notice I said the fourth century theologian and philosopher? We've been wrestling with our restlessness long before we could blame Instagram. Do you see this? <laughs> I mean, we'd like to be able to say, well, it's social media. That's what's causing this. That's why people, no, listen, it's part of being human. And maybe you ask yourself, well, what does this have to do with Easter? That's why I want to look at Mark chapter 10, because it relates specifically to this. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading in verse 32. We're going to kind of unpack this together and then talk about it. So if you want to look there, it says this, beginning with this in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, kill him, and three days later, he'll rise. Now, this connects very specifically to what we looked at last week. If you were here with us, Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. And I want you to notice when you read this, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was getting into. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem with his eyes wide open. He is aware of what's happening. 
And this is important for us to see, and we're going to talk more about that later. But I want to continue because Jesus says this, right? And clearly from what we read next, the disciples are so fixated on the physical realities around them. And they're so politically motivated by this uprising they think they're a part of that they completely miss what Jesus says. And you're going to see how obvious it is when you see verse 35. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> I kind of get a laugh out of that one. <laughs> like, just, would you just do anything we want? And then he said, what do, we want, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you'll drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So basically they come to Jesus and they say, hey, by the way, when you get voted president, can we be in your cabinet? That's what they want. Can we have cabinet positions? And the other disciples, they hear about this and they're like, what are you guys doing? Like, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than us? And so there's this debate, there's frustration, there's anger. Like, why do you guys think you're better? Why shouldn't we have those cabinet positions? All of this is a misadventure in missing the point. And I want to keep going because this next thing is critically important for us to understand. So Jesus is going to clarify things. It says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then listen to verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me read that again. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus chooses a really interesting word here to describe why he came. In fact, the only time that this word is used in the entire New Testament, it's in the account of this particular conversation. It's only used twice, and it's the same exact time. It's recorded in Mark, and it's recorded in Matthew, which means that only once did this word ever leave the mouth of Jesus, and was it put on paper. That means with all of the vocabulary that Jesus had at his disposal, he chose this unique word for a reason. And it's a word the disciples would have known exactly the meaning of the moment that he said it. It's the Greek word lutron, and it means ransom. And this had a really specific usage and meaning in the first century. It wasn't a word that was used generically like we use it. It meant one particular thing. There was one metaphor, one word picture that Jesus was saying when he used the word lutron. The origin of this word is found in wartime or military conflict. And, and during this time period, if you went to war with somebody and you were defeated by that somebody, there were only two choices for you. You either died, or you were made a slave. There were no prisoner of war camps. There were no rules around how we engaged in battle in, in a particular way. If you were defeated, you were enslaved. You, became, you were put into bondage with whoever had defeated you. And they would carry you off to their foreign country, and you would spend the rest of your life serving whoever had conquered you in that foreign land. 
But that wasn't the end of your story. There was one way to bring you home. Somebody could bring a large sum of money. They could travel to that foreign land. They could pay the Lutron and bring you home. Are you with me? Do you see where this is going? When Jesus describes his motivation for coming, he says, I came to pay the Lutron. I went to this foreign land to pay the price to bring you home. There's a place called home where your soul is at rest. There's a, a, a place where your life resonates at a frequency that just makes sense. There, there's a peace and a sense of knowing your place in this place called home. And Jesus says, I have come to liberate you from your bondage in this foreign place and to bring you home. So I want to talk today about what Jesus did to make this possible. And there, there are two aspects of, of what he did based on the metaphor that he chooses. He chooses this to describe his behavior, and there are two dynamics that are going on here. There's something that he did for us, and there's something that he does in us. I want you to notice that. When Jesus uses this description, he's saying that there's something objective that had to be done. There's something outside of you that needed to be accomplished, and there's something subjective that happens in you as a person. There was a debt that needed to be paid, and you couldn't do anything about it, and you you have nothing to do with that. That's outside of you. And then there is this liberation that needed to take place. And through those two things, that is how you find home. And according to Jesus, his death is what accomplishes both of these things. And I think this is where so many people begin to wrestle with questions about the crucifixion and what Jesus was doing and what was he saying when he said he gave his life as a ransom. I mean, when, when we read this, I think it opens up the door for us to begin to ask some of the questions or address some of the questions that I think people genuinely ask these days. And maybe you don't wrestle with this question. Maybe you do wrestle with this question. Um, my guess is there's not one of us in the room that doesn't have a friend that wrestles with this question, and it's this. Why did Jesus need to die? Why did Jesus need to die? I hear people ask that all the time. Like, why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't God just forgive? Why does the biblical God seem so bloodthirsty and, 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 and primitive? Why, why is it this way? So I just want to unpack this and, and help you understand and, and help all of us maybe understand a, a little better. So I want you to do me a favor. I want you to imagine that in, I don't know, 30 minutes when we get out of here, you go out to your car. And as you're approaching your car, you notice that there's a young man out there with a Louisville Slugger baseball bat. And he has been going to town on your vehicle for the previous 30 minutes, right? Your windshield is smashed. Your mirrors are gone. We don't know why. Maybe it looked like his girlfriend's car. I don't know. Or his ex-girlfriend's car. Whatever the case is, you go out the parking lot today, and there's a guy out there beating your car to a pulp, right? Everything's broken, busted up. You're smart enough. He has a bat. You call the cops, right? And Washington County, being as responsive as they are, the deputy shows up right away. They're there on the scene. They start calming the guy down. Meanwhile, you're moving closer to your completely damaged, totaled car. And the officer's calming this guy down, this young man. And at some moment, the young man realizes, right? There's a moment where he realizes what he's done. And it just, you can see it on his face. You can see he suddenly realizes, like, what have I done? And there's genuine remorse. And so he turns to you and says... I'm so sorry for what I did to your car. Can you please forgive me? 
And before you have an opportunity to say anything, the officer looks at you and says, you know, you really ought to just let this one go. He's really repentant. <laughs> and you're thinking, why don't you give me the bat and let me see how repentant he's after, is after a few minutes with this, right? Like, but ima imagine this. Imagine that somehow, somehow standing in that moment, you get past being vindictive or angry and you actually feel compassion and you want to forgive him. You see the sincerity and you want to forgive him. There's still a problem, isn't there? Who's going to pay for my car? <laughs> and that's the problem, right? Who's going to fix my car? See, this, this presents a massive tension that exists in the realm of this conversation that we call forgiveness. Forgiveness on any level is never a simple thing. It always creates a conundrum. Even if you're a loving person, you can't just forgive like some people want to suggest. Why? Because every wrong has a cost. There are damages. So, so in this example, either this young man's paying for the car or you're paying for the car or there's some really generous person that sees you and pays for your car, but somebody's paying for your car. Somebody has to pay. The damages, they don't just evaporate the moment you say, I forgive you. So, so just let me tell you something about forgiveness and why it's so complicated. Forgiveness never means that the wrong evaporates. Forgiveness always means that somebody absorbs it. Somebody absorbs the cost. Even if you're loving, there's still a cost, right? So this isn't an issue of love, and that's where we go wrong. We think, well, if God was loving, then he would just forgive. But once you understand forgiveness, you realize this isn't an issue of love. This is an issue of justice, and, and even if you're loving and you choose to forgive, there is still a justice issue. There's still a cost. So, so let me just talk about justice for a minute. I want us to think about this. How do we know what things are right and wrong? Like, how do you know that something like violence, and then specifically, let's just say violence against innocent people. How do you know that violence like that is wrong? Like, what, what tells you that it is? I mean, what if I stood here today and I said, you know what, um, violence against innocent people included. It isn't wrong. It's just a social convention that certain people have put into place to maintain control. What would you say to that? You'd say, you're crazy, right? Because I feel something in my bones, right? You would argue with this by saying, listen, like if, if I committed violence towards you or somebody else and I just said, well, just let it evaporate. You would say, no, you can't just let it evaporate, right? There is this deep sense in all of us that says, I can't just let it go. We feel, we feel justice in our bones. We feel it. When we see something that's unjust, there's something that rises up inside of us. We have this sense of justice that makes it tough to allow consequences to be evaporated. But God, I want you to think about this. God, his very nature is the justice that we're sensing. Do you understand this? Like the very character, the very nature of God is that he is just, it is who he is. So we might sense justice, but he is justice. So, so you can never say, if God was a loving God, he would just forgive because it's not a loving issue. It's a justice issue. There's a wrong, something has to be righted. And so what does he do? 
Well, I want you to notice the way that Jesus says what he says in verse 45 of Mark 10. It's important. He said this, he said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to notice that Jesus says, I come for this reason. I came for this purpose. I come to pay the debt myself. When people struggle with the cross or when they object to this image of a bloodthirsty God and ask, why did he have to be appeased with human sacrifice? Why is he so primitive? Folks, he doesn't. If you look at what Jesus is saying, that's not what's happening here. It doesn't say that Jesus went to give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't go from us to God like we sent him there. It says that Jesus came for this purpose. He came for this purpose. He came to pay the ransom. He came to do this himself, which means God paid the price himself. And I know this is a bit mind-boggling, but let me just say this very carefully. This is not the son coming to appease an angry father. Even when, even when I say that out loud, in light of everything else we read in the New Testament, it just seems absurd. No, what Jesus is saying is that he, God, came to pay the price. God in the Father and God in the Son infinitely suffered and paid the ransom. They paid the lutron. The Son experienced fatherlessness on the cross. He took the cup, but the Father experienced sonlessness on the cross. They did this together. The lutron was paid. He came. Jesus came to the foreign land and said, I'm bringing you home. That's what I'm doing. It's objective. It happened to us. It happened outside of us. It happened for us. It was done for us. That's what Jesus is saying. His death pays a debt, and it's something for us. And then out of that, there's something that happens in us. There's that liberation that takes place. And these two things are inseparable, by the way. But you have to keep them together. You cannot simply say, well, look at Jesus. He was such an amazing example of love and sacrifice. Let me explain this. Um, I want to share something that, that Gandhi wrote in his autobiography. He said this, he said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Here's what Gandhi's saying. He's saying, listen, I can accept the fact that the cross has subjective influence on me. In other words, he's saying the cross is moving. It's an inspiring example of sacrificial love. It can move us out of the bondage of self-centeredness and self-focus into the liberation of living for others, which, by the way, is a common thread among all Eastern religions, right? But he says, I cannot accept that it has an objective virtue to it, that, that it can objectively change the structure of the spiritual universe for me. I simply can't accept that. It's just an example. It's a beautiful example, but it doesn't do anything cosmically for me. It doesn't do anything outside of me. That's what he's saying. But if this is the case, if the cross is only an example, then the cross is either crushing or it's crazy. 
And, and let me just explain this. Um, every week, I run around the woods that are across the way from the Nike campus. And I know I'm not supposed to, okay? <laughs> but I wear enough Nike gear that people think I'm an employee and no one's ever asked. And so I just keep running, right? So, so sue me. If you're the security guard over there, now you know my face and I've just outed myself. But, but every day, you know, I go, I, I run over there and, and inevitably there is this gazelle-like 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old male that is like, you know, toothpick legs and light as a feather. And they just, they, they go flying by me, like hair flowing in the wind. And I don't even hear them coming up behind me. You know, they're just like little pitter-patter of tiny feet. And they just zoom past me. And you're like, sup, man, you know, a little thing like that. And I'm like, sup, man, you know. And then I, and then there's this moment that happens after that as I watch them, you know, just disappear in the distance because they're running like Mach 1. And every time I, ha- I have to have a conversation with myself, I have to remind myself that in the category of 48-year-old men who weigh over 200 pounds, who work a full-time job, who like good food, have the last name Williams, the middle name Walter, in that category, I'm probably in the top 1% of athletes, at least in a three-mile radius, you know? Like, I'm doing pretty good for myself, right? But you know, if I don't do that, if I don't do that, if I just, if I watch them and I just, and all I think about is the example in front of me, I'll never run again. Listen, if Gandhi is right and the cross is an example, if we're supposed to take it that way, then it's a crushing example. Why? Because I'll never live up to it. You'll never live up to it. When we see Jesus on the cross praying for his enemies, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. When we see that, we'll never live up to that. We'll never live up to that standard. And, if, and that's the best case under Gandhi's view. And, and, at, and at the worst, his view is crazy. And let me explain this. Imagine, um, imagine a few of us, we go to downtown Portland in the middle of winter. And we're just going to imagine it's like two years from now when it's twice as safe, something like that, right? Because it probably will be, right? It's coming back. It's coming back. But imagine we're downtown and it's wintertime and the Willamette's just freezing cold and we're walking along. And as we're walking, I just start to, I just say, you know, as your pastor, I want you to know how much I love you. And so suddenly without any moment's hesitation, I hurl myself over the wall and I jump into the Willamette River and I just sink and I die. And you stand there looking at me, and are you going to say, oh, how he loved us. <laughs> Look at what he did for us. Right? No, you're going to say, the guy's nuts. Like, we're probably better off without him now that we know what we know, right? Like, if we'd have known this is who we were listening to all the time, we would have wished he'd done it earlier, right? Like, this is craziness, right? But if you fall in the Willamette, and I dive in, and I rescue you, and then I perish, that's completely different, isn't it? See, unless there's a threat, unless there's imminent danger, how much does someone's sacrifice really mean? But when I see that it was me that was sinking, when I see Jesus on the cross and I hear him saying, Father, forgive them, and I realize he was talking about me, when I realized that there was imminent danger, that changes everything. 
See, he died to ransom you. He died to ransom me, to bring us home. And when we realize that, when you suddenly see that, that is what starts to change whatever is going on inside of us. Especially when you consider that Jesus didn't just die. It's pretty remarkable that we're standing here today talking about Jesus. Um, Because Jesus, when Jesus dies, he parts company with every other founder, every other leader of every so-called successful religion in the world. Do you realize this? If you think about the founders of all the major world religions, they all overcame their enemies and they all lived to a ripe old age. Without exception. Moses dies of natural causes at 120. I don't even know that I want to live to be 120, but he lived that long, right? Confucius, he died in his 70s, surrounded by his disciples. He died a peaceful death. Buddha had friends around him at the age of 80 when he died. Muhammad died a little younger than the others. He died in his 60s, but he was the ruler of a united Arabia at the time. They all faced persecution. They all overcame their persecutors, and they all were wildly successful. Then you realize this. If you look through the pages of history, you realize there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who attempted to found religions and we don't know their names. And you know why? Because they didn't overcome their persecutors. They were killed. They were defeated by their enemies. Literally hundreds, if not thousands of them. And you've never heard of them. You've never heard of them. Every major world religion, the founder lived to a ripe old age. Every failed religion, the founder died a premature death and you've never heard of him. And then we have Jesus. He did public ministry for two years and he was crucified at 32 years old. How is it that we haven't forgotten Jesus like all the rest? I'll tell you why. Something happened to the disciples. Something happened to them. Something happened that changed the cross from a proof of defeat into a badge of honor, into a bottomless well of joy, into an endless source of power and peace. Something happened. Something took place because their lives were so changed that they led the most influential faith movement in history. Inexplicably, it exploded across an empire. They lived such compelling lives that history has literally been changed. They were turned upside down and inside out. It's the only story of its kind. And so what happened? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 33? We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Today, the very fact that I stand here before you speaking the name of Jesus is evidence that he did just that. He 
is risen. He went to the foreign land to rescue us so that our hearts could find a home. Amen? Amen. I was lost, and then I got found. You know, we all have such different journeys around faith and spirituality. And some of us today has just been a great reminder of who Jesus has been for you for a long time. For some of you, maybe you just fell a little more in love with Jesus today. And, and maybe for others of you, you came in today with lots of questions about who Jesus is. And maybe you answered some of those questions today. Maybe for you, you've sat here and thought, I need to say yes to following Jesus. It's that simple. There's nothing complicated about it. You just simply say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of this Jesus thing that you're up to. That's all it really takes. And uh, others of you, you may still have questions, still may want to know more. I just encourage all of us to press into Jesus. You know, this, this morning as you leave, there's, uh, there's some red books out in the commons that say, Why Jesus? So if you want more answers, if you want to think about this some more, I encourage you to take one of these. Inside of this also is a card for a course that we offer around here called Alpha. And it's a, kind of a spiritual journey. It's a place where you can come and dialogue and ask questions about different aspects of the Christian faith. We serve a great meal. There's kids care, all kinds of stuff. It's an amazing environment. So if you haven't done Alpha, I encourage you to do that. And I just want to tell you about that. And then in a couple of weeks, we're doing baptism. And so if you personally have never identified with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and made that a public statement and you want to, you can sign up for that on our website or out at our info center. And uh, it's just another way to celebrate this beautiful thing called the resurrection. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? We have a tradition around here. For those of you that maybe are new that um, we close every service with a benediction. It's just a prayer of blessing that I offer and um, we just receive that by holding out our hands like this, and I'll raise mine and offer this to you. May you be men and women who see all that Jesus has done to give your heart a home. May you allow it to change you, to shape you, and may you find yourself saying, now, I have found my home in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. Have an amazing, amazing Easter. We'll see you guys next Sunday. Have a great day.